Welcome to the Eastern Hills Audio Podcast. We exist to help as many people as possible take their next step towards finding community and following Christ. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're good with Jesus, just not his church. Maybe you're feeling disconnected and want to reconnect. We think you'll find our messages both helpful and hopeful. So enjoy. Well, good morning, Eastern Hills. Oh, you guys are friendly this morning. As Rob said, my name is Matt Steen, and, and it is an absolute honor to be here with you guys this morning. Through the years, it has been just my distinct privilege to be able to pray with and partner with you and your, your staff and your elders, and I am excited by what God is doing here in central New York. Just hearing some of what Rob just shared about some of, of how you're supporting ministries outside the doors of this church is just exciting to me. And I tell you guys, I... Um, I, I can't wait to see where God takes you all next on this journey. Now, speaking of journeys, Rob just mentioned over the last several weeks, you guys have, have been digging into the journey of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. You've talked about the baggage that they took with them. And if we're honest, we've talked about our own baggage as well, right? Because we all know we have a little. We know that our baggage can help us or it can hurt us on the journeys that we're on. It can act as a bridge or it can act as a barrier for us to truly experience all that God has for us, right? Rob mentioned that I um, currently live in Orlando, and you are welcome. I brought the weather with me this weekend. (laughs) And in Orlando, it's summer for approximately 50 weeks a year. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, after living in places where I've had to shovel snow, I don't miss winter. Y'all can keep it. A few weeks ago, I um, found myself going to Asheville, North Carolina to do some work. I was working with a church up there, and I was going to spend the weekend, and so I went about packing everything that I thought I needed. I I packed my shirt and my shorts, or my, (laughs) it's Orlando, and pants and shoes. I I put together a toiletry kit. Because I was doing consulting work, I needed markers and a flip chart, because no consultant is complete without markers and a flip chart. Thought I had everything I needed. Thought I was good to go. But I got a bit of a surprise. You see, when I left Orlando, it was 85 and it was beautiful. I was wearing a short sleeve shirt similar to this. And, and I, 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 loaded up, I loaded myself up, got on the plane, and when I landed in Asheville, it was 38 and they were calling for snow that night. Now that would have been fine if I had packed a jacket. Forgetting to pack the jacket had a pretty significant impact on my trip, I'm sure you can imagine. I, I got so caught up as I was preparing for the trip and living the life that I knew that I wasn't prepared for the experience that I was about to go into. And that was the misery that is winter. This morning, uh, I want to spend some time looking into what should have been the end of the Israelites' journey through the desert and into the promised land. We're going to unpack what should have been a time of joyous celebration. We're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the, what could have been the culmination of everything that the Israelites had been working towards and the achievement of their dreams, the land of their own. But it was a celebration that was derailed because of the baggage that they brought with them and 
something that they didn't pack. So let's take a few minutes. Let's, let's dive into scripture, shall we? This morning, we're going to be reading from Numbers 13. We'll start in verse 17. If you have your own Bible, go ahead and pull it up. We'll have it on the screens if you don't. If you check it out on your phone, go ahead and just understand that Jesus knows if you're looking at email or scrolling Instagram. As you guys get to there, let me, let me give you a little background on what's going on, okay? So the Israelites, they're closing in on Canaan. This is the promised land. This is everything that God was giving them. This was the culmination of a dream. This was a culmination of their story up until this point. And, and if we think back on all that's happened, God has done some pretty incredible things in, in their story, right? He made a way for them to escape slavery in Egypt. He, he parted the Red Sea to help them escape Pharaoh's armies and chariots. And then he unparted the Red Sea to take care of those armies and chariots and guarantee their safety going forward. He miraculously provided food and water for them time and time and time again. And so they came, as they came upon their final destination, Moses chose leaders from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go up into the land and explore. He chose people who were recognized as leaders in each of their tribe. You know, these were the original Instagram influencers of the day. And, and he sent them out with very specific instructions. And so let's take a look at that. Let's start in verse 17 where it says this. He says, when Moses sent them to Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or is it poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So they went up and they explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob to Libo Hamath. They, they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. But the people who live there, they're powerful, and their cities are fortified and large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, they live in the hill country, and the Canaanites, they live near the sea along the Jordan. So far, so good, right? They went up, they explored the land. They found clusters of grapes so big that they had to be carried back by two men. They found fertile land and they found large cities. Everything that they would need to be a prosperous nation was there. It seemed as though that not only was God delivering on his promises, he may have been over-delivering just a little bit. This was great news. 
This was everything that they had hoped for and then some. All they needed was for somebody to lead the charge. And so let's continue in verse 30 where it says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him, they said, we, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had just explored. They said, the, the land that we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the, the, the Nephilim. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so that night, all the members of the community, they raised their voices and they wept aloud. All the Israelites, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly. And then they said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Well, that certainly turned out different than we expected. What should have been the culmination of a journey turned into a day of mourning. What should have been a, a festive moment became a night of weeping and wailing. What could have been the dawn of a brand new season, a season of incredible blessing. became a season of trial and, and suffering. Now, if, you, um, if you've heard this story before, you know that because of this, the Israelites spent the next 40 years wandering through the desert. And that of all those that were present that day, only Joshua and Caleb came to enter the promised land when the time came. But that's a conversation and probably a sermon for another time. This morning, I want to I talk a little bit about what happened at this pivotal moment in the history of Israel. Because I think there's something to this story that applies to us today. Rob mentioned that I currently live in Orlando, but I grew up north of Baltimore. It was, it was a great place for a boy to grow up, plenty of streams and, and fields and, and trails and woods and everything that I would need to go exploring. And so over the course of the summers, typically my day would start with me jumping on my Schwinn Predator and riding around off to go adventuring. 
And so I remember one day, somewhere probably the summer between my second and third grade year, I, I went about my daily routine and I started by finding crayfish and then decided to go off looking for buried treasure through a field that was chest deep with weeds. And while I was searching for this treasure, um, I found something buried that probably wasn't what I expected as I stepped on a ground nest of yellow jackets. Yeah, exactly. One minute I was off searching for Curly's gold, and then the next minute I was being swarmed by yellow jackets, which were letting me know in the way that only they can how displeased they were with me interrupting their day-to-day -day life. I um, realized what was going on, and I turned around, and I took off as fast as I could, tears streaming down my face, teeth gritted, I jumped on my bike and I rode home sobbing and screaming at the top of my lungs through clenched teeth, I hate these. By the time I got home, we, we went and we, we counted all the stings. I probably had like 45 or 50. And I kind of looked like one of those giant connect the dot puzzles. Yeah, go ahead, laugh, I'm still in therapy. But that's, that's okay. And we, we can chuckle about it now, but if I'm honest, that day changed me. That day changed me significantly. That's the day I became deathly afraid of bees. Now, it makes sense. You want to be a little bit fearful and give bees a wide berth. That just, that just makes sense. But that day changed me to the point where I began to plan my life around the chance of encountering bees. If I was walking along and I saw a bee, I would freeze. I would stand shock still and I would, I would run the math and decide whether I needed to turn around and run as fast as I could the other way or just, just, just stay frozen. That summer, I turned down trips to go get ice cream because I knew that bees would swarm the trash can in order to get a you know, quick sugar fix. Think about that a seven-year-old turning down ice cream because of a fear of bees. Strange? Yeah. Irrational? Absolutely. Healthy? <laughs> Not at all. But it was real. And it impacted me day to day. And I think, I think that the Israelites knew something of that kind of fear. And if we're honest, I think we might too. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that fear can become a major boundary in our lives. It can become a major barrier for us to experience all that what God has, had, has planned for us. And it can keep us from becoming who it is that he, he has designed us to be. We see this story in the story of the, we see this happening in the story of the Israelites, right? And if we're honest, we can probably see some of this in our own story as well. Now, compare, compare the story of the Israelites getting ready to head into the promised land with a story that happens several years later. Okay. On the inside of my wedding ring, I have, um, I have an inscription. It says Habakkuk 1.5. And this is, this is a verse that has become quite meaningful and, and become a theme of my life in many ways. And the passage says this, it says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe 
even if you were told. Now, at first glance, that's a verse that you put on a coffee cup or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or whatever else that we put, you know, Bible verses on these days. But if you know the story of the book of Habakkuk, you know that it might not be all sunshine and rainbows, okay? You know that if, if you've read through this before, you know that the prophet and God are having a conversation about the state of the nation of Israel several, several years down the road. They're looking at what's going on in Jerusalem, and, and they're a little bit dismayed. And that's when God steps up and says he's going to do something amazing, something that Habakkuk would never, would never have expected, something big. Unfortunately, that something big is that he's raising an army to come and overthrow the city of Israel. Now, this, this, isn't, this isn't what Habakkuk had in mind when he first heard that, right? This isn't what, what he had wanted. This isn't something that he had chosen for himself. But what we see is over the course of the story, the prophet comes to the decision that regardless of what happens, he's going to trust in God and he's going to trust what he's up to. And even though the thing that he would not believe, even if he was told, was going, to, was, was, was going to be the destruction of his home, he was going to trust in his God to work for the good. In chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk, starting halfway through the verse 16, we, we read this. It says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. You see, he knows that God is not done working and he knows that this invasion is going to be temporary and that God will not forsake Israel permanently. And so he knows that he's going to wait patiently for God to come back and restore Israel. And he continues on to say, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Let that soak in for a minute. The prophet says, even, even when the, everything goes sideways and when the world is a dumpster fire, and we know something about that, right? He will be trusting in the Lord. He knows that God is good. That's why I have this verse on my wedding ring. It's a reminder to me that even when things don't go the way I want them, even when they take an unexpected twist or turn, taking me into places that I never wanted to go. It's a touchstone that, that, that serves me to remind me of all that God has done up until this day. It forces me to pause. It forces me to re reflect. And it forces me to remember who God is and what he has done. And that he is continuing to work. It reminds me of the, the seasons in, in the past where he's done just that, even though I might not have recognized it at the time. It reminds me of when I was 19 and a, and a new believer in Jesus. I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy, and my plan and my goal and my, my, my everything about me up until that point was I was going to be a fighter pilot. 
And then God shows up and says, I want you to go into ministry. Now, my maturity at the time, I said, you know, that's a great idea, God, but um, I'm here to fly planes, and so that's what I'm going to do. Several months later, I was heading back to Baltimore to start down a path that would take me into 20 years of serving churches. It's a journey that I would never trade for anything and one that I never expected and wouldn't have believed even if I was told. It reminds me of when I was a man in my late 20s serving at a church in, in northern New Jersey, desperately and deeply wanting to be married, but having just ended a relationship with the one that I thought was the one. All I could do was to lean back and trust that God was at work and God was doing something that I wouldn't believe even if I was told. Sure enough, he did, and 13 years ago this month, Teresa and I got married. And it was a long, arduous, seemingly never-ending process that allowed it to happen, but it's one I wouldn't trade for anything. It reminds me of the times that I've told God that I um, would never plant a church in Baltimore. I would never go to graduate school. I would never live on Long Island, and I would definitely definitely never, ever live in Orlando. And how he took me to each of those places and had me do each of those things. And how even though I didn't choose it for myself, he grew me and shaped me into the man that he had wanted me to become in each stop along the way. It reminds me even today that even though Teresa and I have wanted children, that hasn't happened. And through the miscarriages and the frustration and the disappointments and the heartbreak, he is still at work. He is still taking us and shaping us through the experiences that we have, even though we would not choose them for ourselves. But he is using them to help us become who he has called us to be and to work in and through us in our day-to-day lives. You know, the difference between the stories of the Israelites at the cusp of the promised land and the story of Habakkuk is that Habakkuk, he relied on the depth of his relationship with God. He relied on his remembrance of the great things that God has done up until that point. And he drew from that faith to know that God was at work for his good to bring about his purposes and would use, and, and those memories and that faith would provide the hope needed to weather the unexpected, to weather the unwanted, and to help him get through the experience that he was about to endure. I am utterly convinced that were the Israelites to have regularly paused to remember all that God had done to get them to where they were, that they would have had no problem rising up and following Caleb's call to charge into the promised land and take possession of what God had promised them. Had they remembered how God had provided food for them in the desert 
giving them manna and quail for dinner, they probably would have been feasting on grapes the size of their head that evening. If they had remembered how God had protected them from the fearsome armies of Pharaoh, they would have confidently marched into the promised land, regardless of the size of the current inhabitants. But instead, they forgot. They cowered in fear, and they reverted back to their old identity. They reverted back to this identity of slaves who were powerless to change their lot in life. I wish I could say that um, this is a problem that only the Israelites had. But it's not. And if I'm going to be honest with you guys this morning, I struggle with this still. I find myself in the middle of situations where I know where God is calling me to do, but fear raises its, its, its head. Fear begins to creep in, and I forget whose I am, and I revert back to my previous identity. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, maybe one or two of us also struggle with this. So why does this happen? I think there's a few reasons. Three come to mind off the top of my head, though there may be more. I think, I think there's a piece of this that goes to busyness. I think there's a piece of this that goes to distraction. And I think that there's a piece of this that, that, that results out of a loss of a sense of rhythm in our lives. Let's unpack those real quick. Busyness, you guys understand what the, what the busyness of life is, right? I'm not the only one that endures this. For the Israelites, it was the rhythm of breaking down camp and, and marching every day and then setting camp up again. And just the, the constant rhythm of life that had them working time and time and time again. For us, you know, we're putting in our 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week. We're commuting to and from work. We're making sure that kids get homework done, that they get to and from hockey practice, that, 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 they're, that they're getting all their meals, and they're somehow surviving the week relatively unscathed. A lot of us wake up in the mornings and the, the clock's already ticking in our head and we know we're behind, and somehow we're surprised when we have the energy to crawl back into bed in the evening. That busyness can crowd out the time to pause and remember and reflect on what God's doing. But we also struggle with distraction. You know, we, you, may, you may have noticed this, but we, we live in a distracted age. Now, for the Israelites, it was probably distraction about, you know, swapping recipes for manna and quail and, and the best way to treat blisters as they were walking. But I think we live in an age where every four minutes... We get a breaking news icon with dramatic music that shows up on TV telling us that yet another politician has said something that doesn't really matter. At the same time, we've got a distraction machine in our pocket that's always letting us know that, hey, Grubhub knows exactly what you want to eat and it's going to give you 10% off. And while you're waiting for it to come, check out this news story of a celebrity that's gone and changed their hair color. And oh, by the way, respond to this message about TPS reports. Does that sound familiar? This distraction crowds into our life and keeps us from pausing to remember. And between the distraction and the busyness of life, we've lost our sense of rhythm. 
I think culturally, I think this is not just something for us in this room, but I think culturally we've lost a sense of the importance of rhythm. We, we've, we've, lost, we've lost the sense of having set patterns that we lean into on the day-to-day. And instead, what happens is we become slaves to the tyranny of the urgent. You know, we start to pay attention to the thing that screams the loudest. Now, sometimes that's a good thing. If a smoke alarm is going off, yeah, you want to pay attention to that. But if you're going to be honest with yourself, and I know, I know this happens for me, typically the thing that screams the loudest is really the least important. I see a couple of nodding heads out there. That actually makes me feel better about myself. Thank you for that. But I think we instinctively, we know this is true, right? So what do we do about it? Over the last few years, I've become increasingly convinced of the power of rhythm in our day-to-day lives. Now, the dictionary, it, de- it defines rhythm this way. It says it's, it's a strong, regular, repeated pattern of movement or sound. A strong, regular, repeated pattern of movement or sound. For us individually, rhythm is made up of a set of practices that we lean into on our day-to-day basis. These are the things that we do weekly and daily and monthly and hourly the things that we lean on when the storms pop up to help us get through. And I'm convinced that because of the the busy, distracted nature of the world around us right now, that we allow this to interrupt our individual rhythms, which begins to result in a general disconnection from our God. I'm convinced that for us to redevelop that connection, for us truly to have the ability to fall back on the memory of what God has done in our lives, to draw hope from that and faith for where he is taking us, that we need to be relentless about reestablishing those rhythms in our day-to-day. So that when, when fear raises its head or doubt creeps in or, or the storms pop up, We have the the stability and we have the rhythm to rely on to get us through where God is taking us. Now, everybody's rhythm looks a little bit different. My current rhythm includes digging into Scripture at an ungodly hour of the morning and then then getting some time exercising. It it includes intentional periods of rest and, and making sure that I get seven to eight hours of sleep a night. It includes time spent in community with people who love me for who I am and love me enough to speak hard truth to me. But it also includes regular patterns of pausing and reflecting on the story of God in my life up until this point. And I'm convinced that that time of that rhythm of reflection is probably the most important thing that I do on a daily basis. The act of um, sitting down and recounting to myself and then sharing with others the way that, that God has been at work 
allows me to, it, I, I take the time to acknowledge his goodness. I take the time to, to rehearse his provision in my life. It helps me to take the truth that I may know up here and embed it deep into my heart. It allows me to, to cultivate a sense of gratitude towards our creator God and reinforces it into my daily walk. It reminds me that he is at work. It reminds me that he is for me. And it reminds me that he has done great things in my life and will continue to do so regardless of where he takes me. Now, for some of us, this rhythm of reflection is as simple as sitting down with a journal and writing out the story of what God has done in you recently and taking the time to go back and reread it from time to time. For others, this is simply a quiet time of reflection and prayer. Or for, for some, like me, we need touchstones in our lives that trigger the memory of God's greatness. Uh, my, I mentioned my wedding ring earlier. That's one of them. Another is a, it's a car key to a 1984 Acura Integra. I, um, when I was a young youth pastor, <laughs> my, my, my car, my engine, um, died a dramatic violent and noisy death, leaving me without, without transportation. And being a young youth pastor, um, <laughs> I was also without much in my savings account. And so I found myself without transportation until I got a phone call from somebody I'd never met saying, hey, I, I think God wants you to have a 1984 Acura Integra. Another touchstone for me is, is this brick here, it says pray for Baltimore on it, and <laughs> I'm a little concerned about getting this back through TSA this afternoon. Um, so if anybody has any connections, let me know. Um, but this brick, it, it serves as a reminder for me to pray for Baltimore, but it also serves as a reminder of the ways that God provided for and protected us when we were planning a church in that city. It reminds me of the stories of, of not just God's protecting us from some of the elements that did not want us in Baltimore, but also some of the life change that happened through our ministry and our time there. It serves as a reminder every time my eyes come upon it that God is at work and he's doing something amazing. Now, the method of how you do this, the method of how you engage in this rhythm of remembrance is not the important thing. It's the act of doing so and the act of doing so regularly. The practice of pausing to remember all that God has done in and through us, the, the practice of being grateful for how he is continuing to work through us in our day-to-day -day allows us to lean on this practice and, and, and have it support us when the storms pop up. It begins to reshape us. It begins to allow us to look more like Caleb and less like the rest of the Israelites who journeyed with him to explore the promised land. It allows us to be able to draw hope from the baggage that we bring with us instead of fear. You see, that fateful day when they were faced with the opportunity to take possession of what God had promised them, the Israelites went into their bags and they withdrew fear. And it acted as a barrier 
to keep them from taking what God was giving them? Had they regularly leaned into a rhythm of remembrance? I'm convinced, I'm convinced that they would have pulled hope out of that bag, which would have allowed them to, to, which would have acted as a bridge to allow them to go and take what God had put before them. Now, after the last 18 months, you might be saying this morning that, you know, I, I need that kind of hope again. After the last 18 months of busyness and distraction and crisis and arguing and fear and not knowing what's going to happen next, it's not uncommon for us to find that our bags are being refilled with fear. And this morning, I'm going to encourage you guys that it's time to begin restoring and replenishing the hope that comes from our Creator God who sent his son to die on the cross for us. This morning, I'm going to encourage you guys to lean into a season of replenishing and refreshing that hope. And I'm going to invite you guys to engage in this rhythm of remembrance with me. I'd encourage you guys, as you go through the course of this week, set aside time. Start with five minutes. I'd encourage you to put it on your calendar. Set an appointment. If you share that calendar with people at work and you're afraid of scaring them off because you're doing Jesus stuff again, put, put a name on it like, you know, filing TPS reports or whatever that might be. But lean into the rhythm of setting aside time to remember the story of all that God has done in and through you up until this day. And thank him. Thank him for it. And I encourage you to do one more thing. Take some time this week and engage with your community, whoever that might be, and share with them one of those stories of what God has done. Encourage them the way that God is encouraging you and hear their stories of encouragement along the way as well. I'm convinced you get five, seven, ten days of this, you're going to start to notice how easy it becomes to lean into the hope that comes from what God has done in and through you up until this day. Now, there, there may be some of us in this room this morning that we just don't know what we think about this whole, this whole God thing. And, and I'm going to ask you to do something that might sound silly. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Set aside the time. And just reflect. But before you do that, let, let me do something that's going to feel a little awkward and maybe a little strange. And I'm just going to say, hey, a simple prayer. I would encourage you just to pause and say, Lord, I don't know about you. I, I, I don't know if you're real even. But if you are, can you show me how you've been at work in my life up until this point? You may be surprised what you hear. You may be surprised what you see. And take some time and just listen. Our time this morning is, is, is coming to a close, and I'm excited to see and to hear the stories 
of what this rhythm of remembrance does in the lives of everybody in this room and everybody online that's watching this. But as we, as we draw to a close this morning, will you, will you pray with me? Can we take a minute to pray together? Father, um, Psalm 126 tells us this. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nation, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. This morning, Father, I'm surrounded by a body of people that you have done great things in. Father, I'm surrounded by stories of lives changed, of, of families restored, and fortunes reversed. And we're so grateful for the great things that you have done. And this morning, Lord, I, I, would, I would ask that you remind us again day by day by day of all that you have done in and through us. Restore our hope. Refresh our faith. Give us the strength and the remembrance to go where you are leading us. Empty the fear from our bags and replace it with the fresh hope that comes only through the work of your Son and the Holy Spirit. Help us to lean more deeply more deeply in our relationship with you. Father, fill, fill our mouths with laughter. Fill our tongues with songs of joy as we remember all that you've been up to. Father, we love you. Lord, we are grateful for how you are at work in our lives. And we are so excited to see how you move next. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If so, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. For more information about Eastern Hills, please check out easternhills.org. We would love to pray for you. Email your request to office at easternhills.org. If you would like to donate to the ministry of Eastern Hills, click the donate button in the upper right-hand corner of our website. We look forward to connecting with you again next week. Take care. God bless.